Are you someone you know battling cancer? Welcome to Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Feld, where you get to be part of a live consultation with a patient diagnosed with cancer. I was never close to my father. In fact, I found out that he passed away from colon cancer six months after he died. I never got to be with him during his struggle. This podcast and the cutting-edge integrative cancer therapies I offer at my center are my chance to do what I didn't get to do for my father. Tune in as I get to know the struggles and victories of my guests while battling cancer. We will discuss natural medicine and how it can safely be integrated into traditional oncology care. You are not alone in your struggle. Dr. Nasha, it's such an honor to have you on the show mm-hmm. today, and I want to go to that center. <laughs> Thank you. I, you're absolutely welcome. I look forward to that day as well. It's been a dream of mine for 28 years, and so I'm really excited to see it really starting to come to fruition. That's real. So where would this be located at? It'll be in southeast Arizona. Oh, and okay. we, yeah, so we chose that hub because Arizona has one of the most broad medical licenses for both naturopathic doctors and medical doctors and DOs and even acupuncturists. So it's a, that's a draw, but it's also a state that allows you to build hospitals, you know, they, you know, without going through years and years of arduous permitting, arduous permitting processes. And it's also a place that has really good wide open spaces to be able to do what we want to do. The property we're looking at is almost 300 acres. And so we needed a large amount of space to create this template of wellness of how to live healthy on an unhealthy planet. And so that's what landed us in this part of the country. How incredible. I'm, yeah. That is just amazing to have that available mm-hmm. and with all the different, um, like you were talking about here, you know, regenerative farming, EMF mitigation and having like yeah. a retreat. And I mean, how incredible. Yeah. And, you know, it's been inspired. I know you've, you've interviewed a lot of people that I really look up to. Um, and I've been privileged enough to travel to a lot of beautiful health centers and hospitals all over the world that in some ways are so much further ahead than we are here in the United States on really bringing the best of both worlds, standard of care with integrative therapies. And it just doesn't happen in a residential environment in the United States or at a level that's really inclusive of all of these modalities all on one campus in a re-envisioned way. So I'm very excited. It's been, a, like I said, it's been a 28-year journey to bring these ideas to life, and it's just a little bit surreal now that it's coming to, to fruition, as I said before. <laughs> so, so, I mean, and, and with this, I mean, and you, like you said, you've been solving, working on solving the riddle of cancer for a long, long time. And what set you going on that journey? Well, you know, I think probably any of us who are drawn to working in the field of cancer, we didn't get there by just like waking up one day and, you know, I think a nice vocation for me would be working with cancer. Like no one makes that choice just willy nilly. And for me, it was my own direct experience with cancer as many of my colleagues, either they had it impact their lives directly or someone very close to them directly. And so I'm no different on that level, but I was dealing with a lot of health issues my entire young life, um, loads and loads of 
health issues to the point that by the time I was in uh, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I was in and out of an emergency room every single month with just unbearable GI pain, lots of overall like exhaustion, nausea, digestive issues. And unfortunately, because I'd had years of IBS and endometriosis and polycystic ovarian disease and all these other issues, everyone just chalked it up to just like an extenuation of those symptoms and those disease processes, as did I. And by the time I was actually far too gone and far too sick, in-stage organ failure and fluid built up all over my abdomen, around my heart, in my lungs, it's when they finally did proper imaging and proper testing to realize it was in fact in-stage ovarian cancer. It had metastasized my liver all throughout my pelvis into my lymph nodes, covering all surfaces of my organs and definitely a grapefruit-sized uh, tumor in my right ovary. And I was severely cachectic, uh, meaning I was massively losing muscle mass very quickly and the, the cancer was eating all of my resources. I had a pulse ox in the 70s. I was on death's door. My kidneys and my liver had essentially shut down. And so it was a very scary time. Over a few months, they pulled out over eight and a half liters of fluid from my abdomen. This is back in 1991. Okay, so we are coming on to 30 years in October 2021 will have been my official diagnosis. Just um, my symptoms were really raging, and I was actually in the hospital right before my 20th birthday, but it still took a few weeks to get pathology back. So it was into October of 1991 to get that diagnosis, but it was from that experience. I never expected to survive it. They told me I had um, three months to six months to live. They said I was too sick to even get a single treatment because my organs were in such failure. And they basically referred me to palliative care. And so in that, I didn't expect to live. So I thought, well, if I'm going to go out, I want to go out understanding. I had a naturally inquisitive brain. I was a pre-med student. I was very interested in physiology, but I was also very interested in psychology. And I knew that where I came from had to have something to do with what landed in my body, what it was expressing in my body. And so I changed my major from biology and chemistry to biology and psychology and basically created a self-constructed major of psychoneuroimmunology to start to learn everything I could. And each time I made it a month past my expiration date and another month, it just became more and more evident that perhaps I was far more powerful than I was led to believe. And it's led me on now a 30-year journey of still living, being a living laboratory and exploring all, all things integrative oncology centric from all over the world. It's quite humbling and I learn something new every single day. So, I mean, obviously you have a tremendous amount of more tools now than you had then. I mean, <laughs> what do, you, <laughs> but do you feel it was just your kind of a emotional, spiritual, mental outlook that shifted your ability to live? Because obviously I mean, there are some cancers that is very survivable. Ovarian is just not one of them. And especially exactly. when you're in as such a bad state as you are. Right. Uh, I mean, medical medicine really doesn't have a solution to that. So what, exactly. what do you feel was, was the biggest factor that made you to be able to sit here and talk to me today? I love that question because a lot of people want me to give them a tangible, it was this pill or this herb or this drug or this modality. 
And it was none of those things. And to your point, it was very much a quantum shift. And ironically being told there was nothing that could be done, I went to the library and the book that jumped off the shelf at me was Quantum Healing by Deepak Chopra. <laughs> Back then, this man was barely known, right? Like it was just crazy. And I sat down and inhaled that book in a matter of two or three hours, literally sitting on the library floor in a sunbeam reading this, just going, whoa, this resonates this makes sense. And so probably the most instrumental piece I did is I started there, whereas most patients, that's the last resort. No one wants to go into the closets with all the skeletons, right? But I somehow knew I was somehow given that gift to realize that without dealing with that first, I would not survive this. Yeah, exactly. And that is, um, I know you talk a lot about the emotional component. Obviously, you are a big proponent in regards to the metabolic approach to cancer, you know, how we can metabolically shift the environment in our bodies uh, so that cancer have a hard time to thrive. But you also talk a lot about the emotional aspect, you know, the, the despair, how yeah. we as a society feel disconnected. Yeah, it's huge. And to me, what's interesting is that even our metabolic health is very sensitive to the signaling of our mental health. And so our thoughts, our stressors, our traumas, our you know adverse childhood events can impact the health and vitality of our metabolic and mitochondrial functioning. And so we don't give that enough credence, I think, in standard of care today. We really we kind of like say, oh yes, integrated medicine go down and do a little touch for healing down at that far into the hallway in its own little box. And we we kind of give lip service to it, but we really do not help people understand that without dealing with those components, no matter what diet or drug or supplement or herbal therapy or modality you you apply, it won't do anything if it's still landing on a terrain that is in trauma or in grief or loss or chronic stress. It just can't. It can't activate the body in the way it needs to to heal when you're still in that space. Yeah, I love that. So we were talking a little bit about the kind of the trauma, a body and trauma. And I know something that you talk a lot about is the vagus nerve and the impact that it has on the body and how it really is is crucial for any kind of healing to take place. And obviously trauma Mm -hmm. will really make that vagus nerve dysfunctional. Can, Can you tell me a little bit about that? I sure can. You know, there's these these nerves that leave basically our brain, and they move down through the brain into the rest of the body. And the one that innervates sort of everything we do with regards to digestion, to resting, to breathing, to our heartbeat, to pooping, to processing, you know, detoxifying, to, you know, any of those processes, this nerve cranial root nerve number 10, known as the vagal nerve, innervates all of these pieces. If you look at a, at a poster that shows where those nerve roots from vagal nerve 10 hits, you see it innervates the heart, the pleura, the lung, the liver, the gallbladder, the, you know, the GI tract everywhere from the small to the large intestine, the stomach. I mean, really what massive, you know, what organ in your torso is not impacted? I mean, they're every single one of them. And so we always joke that, you know, when you're running from a saber-toothed tiger, when you're in that stress response, you don't stop and take a dump in the woods. You don't make love. You don't orgasm. You don't take a nice nap. Those are the things cannot happen when you're revving. So when I hear patients complain, 
and myself included in this, especially at that time in my life, of chronic constipation or alternating constipation with diarrhea or reflux or a sense of a knot in their abdomen or gallbladder problems. Or I hear people talk about poor libido, poor sleep, adrenal fatigue, you know, I'm always kind of basically following that line all the way back to the vagal nerve. And the vagal nerve is so receptive and responsive to the messages we're sending it from our outworld experience and how it impacts our inner world experience. And it signals different neurological impulses to create a, you know, kind of a parasympathetic, meaning more that relaxed and rest and, re- and re- repair, or a sympathetic, meaning that run from the bear, contract, and be motivated, be in motion. And so when that gets overly fired, we start to get all kinds of problems and symptoms. And so I love that we can actually work, like this is why I think in the ancient medical practices, we see things like chanting, toning, singing, humming, You know, music therapy is very much part of things like anthroposophical medicine. When you go into native shamanic healing traditions, they're playing the drums over your body. You know, Tibetan and Buddhist healing traditions, they're using the the bowls, the song, you know, the sound remedies throughout your body. It's part, it's just as old as we are as humanity. We've been using sound, which those frequencies impact basically the innervation of those nerves. So a lot of times we can actually tone and improve the effect of our vagal nerve with things like singing and humming. You know, it's like maybe why church is so powerful for people is you get together on Sunday mornings and you sing and what you're doing collectively is a beautiful, you know, vagal nerve toning, like a communal vagal nerve tone moment. Very powerful. Even tongue scraping from the ancient Ayurvedic traditions stimulates a vagal nerve response. Even holding your breath and bearing down when you're having an arrhythmia, like a heart irregular rhythm, or you're feeling anxious or you're breathing really rapidly, holding your breath and bearing down for a few seconds will sort of reset that nerve. There's a lot of powerful trauma release therapies that have a direct impact on our vagal nerve response. And once people start to get normal vagal tone again, a lot of those physical symptoms resolve. And that was so incredible. I remember when I interviewed Dr. Eva Detko about the vagus yeah. nerve, how it is just like any muscle. I mean, if you mm-hmm. don't, if you're in that sympathetic state, in that stress state or trauma state, then it's like you're then forgetting that the vagus nerve and all its function are just kind of withering away. So all the different things that you said, I mean, those are the things if you start doing that, it's, it's like weightlifting for your vagus nerve so it becomes stronger and <laughs> all all those functions get better and better. I love it. I love it. Yeah, exactly. How can that relate to cancer? I mean, and your metabolic aspect. I mean, I would assume that there'd be a, a direct correlation. Mm-hmm. Your assumption is correct. I did a presentation this year for the Noak Foundation out of South Africa, which is actually a kind of a global world nutrition summit, what I spoke on. But I spoke on the concept of beyond insulin, beyond you know the sugar response or sugar scavenging response. There are many things that can affect our metabolic health, many things that can spike our blood sugars. And one of the biggest ones is stress and stress response. When you have increased cortisol, that stress response, it will in turn increase insulin. And insulin itself is a stimulates growth factors known as insulin growth factor. And well over 70% 
and some places can say as high as 90% of all cancers are directly linked to that insulin, insulin growth factor response. Likely all of them are to some degree, but 70 to 90% of them are very intimately related to that response. So yes, you could be eating the perfect meal. You could be eating super low carb. You could be eating ketogenic. You could be doing perfect intermittent fasting or restricted window eating and eating the perfect quality of foods. And yet your insulin and insulin response could be off the charts. And that's when we explore further of what is revving that engine? What is keeping that vagal nerve not doing its job to stimulate the liver to process you know, the glucose, to stimulate the pancreas to release the insulin, to, to stimulate the digestive tract to absorb the nutrients and release the toxins? You know, all of those things get halted and the vagal nerve is intimately involved in all of that. And we just take it so for granted because that vagal nerve is under basically our unconscious driving. But the coolest thing is we can consciously impact it. So once you become aware of it and you learn that you have some power over it, that's where things like breath work. We've actually been shown that we can lower our glycemic and our insulin response with breath, right? With a good night's sleep. I mean, just two nights of poor sleep can spike your insulin growth factor, just like eating a half a loaf of bread or a couple of candy bars, right? It's just as impactful when we take those things for granted. Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously what you did in your initial diagnosis proved this point. I mean, it, it yeah. proves the effect of addressing just something like this instead of going after it with heroic type of therapies. You know, we're going to blast it and kill it. And, you know, yeah. and even in integrative therapies, we have these heroic mm-hmm. type of therapies. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have this foundation, you know, none of that is, is going to work. I love that you bring that up. Because I often tell people that I think I was very lucky to be diagnosed and to be sick at the time that I was sick because there was no Dr. Google, right? There was no internet. There was no Facebook forums. There were no, you know, there was not a plethora of integrative oncology experts all, or at least claiming to be experts from all over the world, giving you their advice. There was no well-meaning Aunt Ida saying that her cousin's uncle's brother's dog did this treatment for this cancer. I think that having basically no input allowed and even forced me to get very still and to go deeply inward to explore what was going on for me, what brought me to that moment, and what was it going to take for me to change that outcome. I was definitely pushed into the arena of the end of one, you know, just like this is my process, my journey, and my journey alone. And I think today we are so happy to have those connections and those resources and to know of all of our colleagues that are out there doing amazing stuff, but they are so conflicting in some ways or confusing or opposite of one another, and it creates even more stress. It shuts down that vagal nerve even further. And when I meet patients who are are so outwardly looking for the answer and trying all these different therapies and doctor hopping and reading and researching like crazy, I will tell you that is just as detrimental than if they just quietly went in and sat in the chemo chair without asking any questions and just started napalming the field with cytotoxic, you know, standard of care therapies. They're just as bad as each other. They cause just as much damage to the terrain as each other. And so we definitely need to start working more towards a test, assess, address, don't guess approach. 
about that. So, you know, we, we said step by step, this is what you need to do. So you have an individual, you know, obviously we need to have that foundation of getting the individual out of trauma. Uh, what are the approach? I mean, we want to make sure that the metabolic aspect of the individual, their mitochondria is, is functioning optimally. So what kind of approach do you take when a person comes mm-hmm. to you? Perfect. Well, first of all, I'd like to educate the, you know, I I work now directly with doctors. I now train doctors in the methodology that I've had such success with, with myself and tens of thousands of patients over nearly three decades. And so I now teach the doctors the methodology to help their patients find the critical path forward for themselves to have better outcomes, no matter what the appropriate therapy is. And so where we start is this concept of test. So my sort of mantra is test, assess, address don't guess. And simply starting when we test, that is a a deep dive evaluation. That could be a self-audit. That could be questionnaires. That could be a variety of typical blood tests. That could be tissue and liquid blood biopsies to evaluate molecular markers. That could be epigenetic testing. And that could be provocative testing on things like heavy metal exposures, uh, co-infection issues, hormonal metabolites. So we run a lot of tests. We want a lot of data. We do a series in my intake. It's a series of 25 individual questionnaires all lumped together over about 57 pages. It is a commitment of time and energy. We are also collecting that data into a database so we can start to do translational medicine where we're starting to see trends and patterns that correlate to situations, not to cancer types or disease types or which tissue in the body that cancer showed up in, but what circumstance, what situation allowed that tissue to change, you know, allowed that tissue to express. Tissue to express. So the testing is the first step. That testing will often require also what I call my Terrain 10 questionnaire. So it's 10 parts of this questionnaire with 10 questions under each section to look at basically the individual drops that go into the bucket that affect our mitochondrial metabolic health. And that includes things like our epigenetics, so what was passed down to us from previous generations, that we know that we are able to rise above and change with our diet, lifestyle, and relationship choices. We look at the metabolic health, so we're looking at diet and lifestyle, we're looking at family history of things like diabetes and Alzheimer's and things that suggest metabolic brokenness, given that less than 12% of Americans are metabolically flexible. I just make the assumption that everyone's kind of a metabolic hot mess if they're seeing me. It's a pretty accurate um, assessment, I found. And then we look at things like toxicants. You know, my teacher, Dr. Walter Crinian, who's since passed, he was saying that it's no longer a matter of if you have toxicity, it's how bad is it and how does it interact with your epigenetic blueprint. And then we evaluate things like people's microbiome, their immune system, inflammation, angiogenesis, and oxygenation of their tissues, hormonal balance, stress response in that circadian rhythm, and then our mental emotional sphere. So those 10 drops in the bucket, if we are perfectly, people love to do the tangible, right? They like to change the diet and take the supplements and do the exercises and all that. But the stuff that's the intangible is often the most difficult to conquer and the most difficult to integrate into our lives. And even our colleague, Dr. Kelly Turner, in her first book, Radical Remission, and her follow-up book, Radical Hope, you know, she's found that those who quote-unquote spontaneously heal or radically heal, there are nine kind of major cofactors that are common 
in all of these situations. And seven of them have nothing to do with the tangible. Only two, diet and supplements, are like those more tangible, whereas everything else falls into that mental, emotional, spiritual stress response that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about today. And so I take that step first. I get a sense of what got the person to this situation. And that's where we start. And then we move into assessment. Okay, well, what does all this data tell us? What types of patterns does it elucidate? How can we now tell the biography of the person's biology and then explain to them the biology of their biography? And so it goes both ways. We educate and empower the practitioner and the patient to deeply understand all of that information that we tested on. And then with that story, we now know the best route forward with the way to address it. And so a lot of people out there are throwing a lot of incredible treatments at their stuff, at their cancer, but it's often not maybe done in the right timing or the right dosing, or it may not be a fit at all for the patient's situation. And so going through that methodology of testing first, assessing it and elucidating all the patterns helps us really know what the priorities are and where to begin in this journey. And it's way less overwhelming and way less stressful for the patient once you have a very good prioritized roadmap is what we end up calling it. And so we don't guess and we actually go back. We actually test our patients every single month through their process through treatment and for until the particular labs I watch for normalize. We'll do that every single month until they do. And if they don't, we keep testing and we change course of therapy if we're not getting the improvement we want. So a lot of my colleagues out there will put people on these beautiful protocols, but they don't know if they actually were appropriate and they don't know if they're doing anything and patients aren't being tested enough to know if they were appropriate. And they also aren't being tested to see when the treatments have basically run their course or actually now causing more trauma to the terrain. And that's what I get to pick up on all the time when I'm seeing patients who've seen brilliant colleagues of mine. I'm like, wow, they actually over-treated you. They over-harvested, and now we're dealing with massive oxidative stress. And now we're dealing with more aggressive mutated cancer cells that are less responsive to many therapies. And now we have to really change course in a different way. That's just one example. And so I love this approach. It has been an incredible success for myself and for thousands and thousands of my patients and now thousands of my colleagues' patients. And it's frankly kind of fun, as weird as that sounds, because you start to see the patterns before they even fully reveal themselves. You start to guess what the person, you start to know what their epigenetics are going to show you when you get the results back. I love it. I've done this for so long now. I see patterns. Like when you look at those posters with the wiggly lines and there's nothing but wiggly lines, but if you cross your eyes just enough and soften your gaze just enough, suddenly you see like the dolphin jumping out of the ocean or, you know, a unicorn running across the landscape. You suddenly can see it more clearly. That's the level I've gotten to in my own practice of this is to be able to start to recognize these patterns before we even have all the information before us. And then it's just kind of fun to validate what I'm seeing. And we're collecting all this now in real time in a very robust database. And we hope that between the automated and machine learning components that are now being built upon within that database, that we can actually make this process far more scalable and usable by all of our colleagues so we can actually serve far more patients in a far more efficient time and a far more reproducible way to address these particular patterns.
That's really exciting. That's really incredible. Yeah. So I'm curious, with all these different tests, mm-hmm. you mentioned the epigenetics. So how do, I mean, because when you go to standard of care, you, know, you go to the, the chemo, radiation, and uh, surgery, and, and now immunotherapy, I mean, they really don't care about any of that. It's, it's just <laughs> it's the cancer, and let's yeah. not just, you know, we'll put you on a conveyor belt, and we'll just <laughs> move you through the process. Yeah. So how, how do you, what are some things that you learn from the epigenetic testing, mm-hmm. you know, whether you can give that person high-dose vitamin C, or whether we can do that therapy, or whether they should exercise a lot, or maybe exercise will bring up their insulin level. Or, right, you know, right. What, what are we learning? Oh, I love this question. I mean, first of all, you're spot on that there's a lot of, of physicians, standard of care, but even even non-standard of care, sometimes don't understand or embrace the power of information we can glean from our epigenetic blueprint, right? And so typically, though, oncology in general, even integrative oncology still tends to be tumor-centric, tumor at the center of the equation, the tumor cell at the center of the equation, or the tumor um, molecular pathway at the center of the equation. And we've become incredibly myopic to that over the past 75 plus years where we keep honing in and we keep thinking we're going to find the one target with the one treatment with the one cure. And that is, frankly, a terrible failure. And it's an average of 17 years from the bench to the bedside for any one of these targeted therapies to make it into kind of mainstream. And our patients don't have that kind of time. But what we've been able to show for a very long time, all the way back at the time of Warburg and the metabolic aspects that mitochondria may be at the heart of this versus DNA problems, and even into the 1980s, when I was going through my own process in the early 90s, I ran across the work of Dr. Mina Bissell, like the vacuum cleaner. Um, And you can see her amazing TED Talk out there as well. But she kind of resurrected the idea that, hey, guys, you all keep focusing on the tumor. But what I'm noticing in my lab is that the Petri dish in which that tumor is, you know, that tumor cell or tumor line is growing and seems to change if I change the medium for those cells. And, and basically she was like, wow, it's, it's not the tumor or the tumor cell, but it's what it's growing in or growing out of. You know, we might call that the extracellular matrix. We might call that the tumor microenvironment. I call it the terrain. Right. And so in this piece, it's sort of like I always tell patients, we cannot heal from the soil in which we got sick. And so when we keep also applying a therapeutic intervention that literally is trying to poison the body in order to make it well, the bigger miracle to me is that anybody survives it, number one, or stays in remission, number two. That just to me is like the miracle of it all. But the harsh reality is that 70% of patients who've had a cancer diagnosis and undergone a standard of care treatment will have, will have a recurrence. And the reason being is because there was nothing changing that soil, that terrain, that extracellular matrix. And so as such, that's where I focus in on. So what epigenetics in that testing tells me is the propensities that people have to be more resilient or less resilient. We can even look at their drug metabolism abilities. So do they tend to make drugs act more like a pro-drug, meaning making, do certain drugs, are they far more toxic for them? 
or do they have really wicked fast metabolism so it pushes things through too quickly so we're not even getting a therapeutic effect. We can understand people's response to treatment really beautifully. With all the excitement around off-label drugs, I can even look at the SNPs, like for instance, SIP2C9 star 3. These folks are not good candidates for metformin, and yet metformin is sort of dished out like M&Ms today, right? And these patients have terrible times with GI side effects, fatty liver, B12 deficiency, further methylation problems, and frankly, worsening of their cancer. Just like patients who get on like the statin drugs, but they've got a CoQ2 SNP, these are the patients that are going to have the rhabdomyolysis. These are the patients that are going to have the cardiovascular events secondary to uh, the depletion of their CoQ10 from those drugs more so than the average show. Or the patients that are out there saying, well, I'm eating keto and my cancer is getting worse. And we're like, well, guess what? You have ACAT and ACSL1 and APOE33 or 34, and you've got lots of L-cells from C22A5 SNPs where you aren't able to get that fat across the cell membrane because your carnitine shuffle isn't working. I am able to troubleshoot people's sort of like what we would expect them to have reactions to, or if I'm seeing a patient not responding the way I would expect them to, to any given system or you know, treatment then it's almost always an epigenetic expression. And we can manipulate that. The epigenetics can be manipulated with diet, lifestyle, thought process. And so for me, it's sort of the secret sauce of each and every one of us that makes us have a win or a fail to whatever therapies we approach, whatever therapies we apply. And I think it's really a shame that my colleagues aren't more excited about it. You know, uh, my husband teaches um, epigenetics to oncologists and scientists and practitioners all over the world to understand how to take it from the bench to the bedside. And I think it can be really illuminating for us to understand how to best support our patient, the individual, you know, not that collective standard deviation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's the key is that each individual, they're unique. I mean, and their yeah. situation, so on a varying cancer from one person to another, they're not the yeah. same. Yeah, they are caused by different factors and they're fed by different factors and they are maintained by different factors. So if you have to, I mean, this individualized, personalized care is becoming more and more important to be able to do that in a, in a process that's understandable and achievable. I mean, that is becoming so important. Yes, and we now really can see cancer as a manageable disease process when we utilize this test, assess, address methodology. Because each step of the way is just that, it's a step. And, it, and we're letting the body, the wisdom of that individual's body guide us through instant feedback from the patient's subjective experience as well as the objective data of imaging and tissue assays and epigenetic expression and regular blood labs. We can see if we are pushing the needle in the right direction or in the wrong direction very, very easily. And it's very exciting to me that it can be so calibrated and so specific and so sensitive and so precise and so personalized. We give a lot of lip service to, oh, the, the era of precision personalized medicine, but it's still all coming from the filter of we're going to find the one target with the one treatment. We're going to look for this one obscure needle in the haystack, you know, gene 
that this person has, and we're going to treat it with this billion-dollar drug that has an 80% failure rate, and we're going to call that a success when our patient lives an average of 24 extra days, which in a recent study that came out showing 17 years of cancer drugs coming to the market, that the average life expectancy of those drugs on those patients, the overall survival rate, was 2.4 months, and we call that a success. Isn't that, I mean, that's just outrageous. And the, the amount is. of money that's been spent in order to be able to achieve that, it's, I mean, that's appalling. Agreed. Agreed. And we can go back to this very simple way. It's like, well, was that test even appropriate? Like you're giving this person a checkpoint inhibitor, but did they even have the target for that? Can't tell you how often. And did we do the proper assessment as whether that person's immune system can even handle that checkpoint inhibitor? A survey that even MD Anderson created of seven questions, and yet I've yet to see an oncologist ask those questions of their patients. And that's why more than 80% of patients put on those drugs have abstract failure because no one's just doing, they're not even using the tools that their own institutions are spitting out for us to use. It's just incredible to me. So I'm so accustomed to being called a quack, and yet every single day I see major quackery, and it's not happening in the integrative oncology environment. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, a person can be called, called a quack you know, all day long, but if they are achieving <laughs> results, you know, how... Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what matters. So if you are supported by all these studies and all you're doing is able to increase the lifespan of two months, whatever that was, I mean, how can you call yourself then being able to achieve something? I mean, you at that time would be a quack. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. When I hear the two gripes against integrative oncology, one is that people are just charlatans trying to take your money. That's number one. And two, there's just no studies. There's no evidence. And so that's what we're aiming to do with this hospital. The hospital is a not-for-profit hospital. So it's not even taking your money, right? It's living on research dollars, philanthropic donations, uh, donations in general, cash pay, right? And then number two, the data. The, the research. It's a data, it's a research institute, but we're collecting all of our data in real time and we're also actually looking at, because we're leaving the realm of industry paid for and driven research, we're actually moving into basically the philanthropic paid for research. That's where we're finding now is we're finding funds in areas outside of the industry that are willing to pay for the research necessary to make these things become more standard of care. And so those two things I'm trying to overcome, I'm literally my goal is to change the face of integrative, uh, to change the face of oncology in general, and that's it's happening. And this is where I get so excited. It's a, such a beautiful collaboration of like-minded practitioners from all over the world. And the great thing with that is that you will not be dependent on money from big pharmaceutical companies or educational institutions that yeah. will then drive in what direction your research is to be done. Exactly. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Dr. Winters, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and you are doing such amazing work, and I'm so excited to see how all of this is going to evolve and really bring integrative cancer care to, I mean, not just the next level, but it would skip a few. 
<laughs> we hope so. That's our intention, and and we're doing it together. We're, do, I mean, literally, even these conversations with you and what you do and how you educate the masses. This is how we change it. It's a global effort, and we have a big hill to climb because we have a lot of things backed up against us. The industry is very powerful, but I think if we just sort of instead of trying to fix the institution, we're just creating a brand new one. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. Well, Definitely. thank you so much, uh, Dr. Winters. It's, it's yeah. been wonderful. Wonderful to be part of this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. The information this podcast is for educational purposes only, and it's not designed to diagnose or treat any disease. I hope this podcast impacted you as it did me. Please subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes are released. There are some excellent shows coming up that you do not want to miss. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please take a moment to write a review. And please don't keep this information to yourself. Share them with your family and friends. You never know what piece of information that will transform their lives. For past episodes and powerful information on how to conquer cancer, go to integrativecancersolutions.com. If you would like to know more about the cutting-edge integrative oncology therapies my center offers, please visit thecarlfeldcenter.com. Thank you for spending this time with us, and I hope to see you at our next episode of Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Feldt.